Hey friends, Nina here. Some of my earliest episodes have really poor audio quality, or they are outdated because of updates in the case. Either way, I've taken many of them down, about 60 episodes, and I'm taking select episodes and re-recording and re-releasing them. This case, Murder at Goodheart, is one of the cases that I am re-recording and re-releasing. As always, I appreciate your support of Already Gone. You continuing to tune in week after week means so much to me. I hope you know how much I appreciate each and every one of you. And now, on with the show. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back in the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. There is no place like up north in the summer, especially in the communities along the northern part of Lake Michigan. The trees are green, the water is blue, and the beer is cold. Picturesque downtowns dot the state highways along with rolling hills and deep woods. Places like Harbor Springs, Petoskey, Charlevoix, Sutton's Bay, Traverse City. The days are warm and sunny, and the nights are often cool. Humidity provided by the big lake brings the temperature down, making it just right for a campfire and a good night's sleep, particularly in the days before central air. That's why the Robison family had a place near Petoskey, because it's an idyllic place to spend the summer. The name Petoskey comes from the Ottawa Indians who lived in the Traverse Bay region before white settlers came. Petoskey means where the light shines through the clouds. Isn't that beautiful? Petoskey is in the northwest corner of the state. It's about a four-hour drive from the Detroit area. Having a summer home or cottage, as they are most often referred to, was a popular choice for people of a certain income. Visitors from Detroit and Chicago make the drive up for a week or a long weekend of fun on one of the many smaller lakes, or they journey all the way to the northern shores of Lake Michigan. This is where the Robison family had a cottage. They christened the cottage Somerset, and the name of the cottage was on a big wooden plaque that was displayed above the fireplace. The stone and log home was steps away from the shores of Lake Michigan. The house itself was tucked in the woods, private and secluded, the closest neighbor dozens of yards away. The house was in a planned resort community known as Blisswood, named for the home builder who designed rustic and beautiful houses made of log and stone. It was mid-June, 1968, when Richard and Shirley Robison headed to Somerset accompanied by their four children. The Robisons had three sons, Richard Craig, a 19-year-old who had just finished his freshman year at Eastern Michigan University, Gary, age 16, Randy, age 12, and little Susan, who was just seven years old. Neighbors at Blisswood saw the family several times over the next ten days. 
Richard talked of a visit to Florida with a stop in Kentucky. So when the family was not seen again after June 25th, no one thought much of it. The Robisons must be headed for Kentucky to look at horse farms or shopping for a condominium on the beaches of Florida. Summer continued at Blisswood. Temperatures are in the mid-70s and the nights cool down, but the humidity, it's persistent. As June turned to July, Somerset was quiet, but it wasn't vacant. On July 22, 1968, a group had gathered at one of the neighboring cottages for another up-north pastime, playing cards. As they sat down to their game, they couldn't help but notice a stench coming from the woods. They called the caretaker, Monty Bliss, thinking that a deer had died out there and the carcass needed to be dragged away. Bliss searched for the source of the overpowering smell, which led him to Somerset, and a truly grisly scene. It seems that sometime during the night of June 25, 1968, someone or someones attacked the Robison Cottage. The entire family was dead, and they'd been dead for weeks, their bodies waiting patiently in their sunny cottage by the lake for someone to find them. Richard and Shirley Robison lived in the Detroit suburb of Lathrop Village. Lathrop Village is a tiny enclave of homes inside the city of Southfield. The planned community was developed in the 1920s as a series of upscale homes on curving streets and circles. Their Lathrop Village home was just a block or two away from the home of hockey legend Gordy Howe. Robison ran his business, an advertising firm, and a rather avant-garde art magazine, Empresario, out of a small one-story office on Southfield Road in Southfield. And if you're keeping track of places we've been to previously on the podcast, the Robison home and office are just a mile and a half south of the location where the body of Harvey Leach, your uncle in the furniture business, was found in the trunk of his car back in March 1974. By all outward appearances, silver-haired Richard Robison was a successful advertising executive and a dedicated family man. Shirley Robison kept a lovely home and raised well-dressed, well-mannered children. The family lived in a brick ranch home in Lathrop Village and summered at their lakefront cottage between Petoskey and Harbor Springs. Richard was not a smoker or a drinker. Ten years earlier, he'd helped found the Calvary Lutheran Church, and the family attended services there each week. In the summer of 1968, Robison was shopping for a condo in Florida, or maybe a horse farm in Kentucky, or maybe both. This was also the summer when they would celebrate their 20th wedding anniversary. The afternoon of the 25th, there were tree trimmers working in Blisswood, and they are the last people to see the family alive. Their workday ended around 4 p.m. The afternoon turned to evening, and at 9 p.m. on June 25th, neighbors a quarter mile away from the Robison family cottage heard gunshots and yelling. They didn't think much of it, figuring that someone was taking pot shots at the many seagulls on Lake Michigan's beach. While the sun would be headed for the horizon, there would be plenty of daylight left for such an activity. 
After June 25th, the family was not seen again, and neighbors assumed they'd headed south, as the patriarch of the family had mentioned earlier. Before we go any further, this was a brutal crime. A family was annihilated. The murderer worked hard to kill everyone and to cover his tracks. And I don't like getting into the gory details of a case, but this time it's important to the story. Please consider yourself warned. Richard Robison was a healthy 42-year-old man. His older boys were 19 and 16. You have to wonder how someone could overpower them. Investigators theorized that Dick Robison was in the living room when shots from a 22 caliber rifle came through the window, striking him in the chest. The killer then entered the home, shooting Randy and Shirley before finding the remaining brothers in the hallway, probably headed to their room for a hunting rifle, which they were unable to reach before being gunned down. To make sure everyone was dead, each victim was shot once in the head with a 25 caliber handgun. Susie, the baby of the family at age seven, was bludgeoned with a claw hammer. I suspect that the time that elapsed from the first shot to the last was less than five minutes. Then, the killer had plenty of time to complete his gruesome work. This killer wasn't interested in slaughtering the family then leaving. That wouldn't do. He had two female victims to punish, and bodies to move. He didn't want the victims to be visible if someone peered through a window. He started with 39-year-old Shirley Robison, stripping her from the waist down, then positioning her body, giving the appearance of a sexual attack. She was left on the floor near the entrance of the cottage. Law enforcement was unable to determine if she was sexually assaulted. It is my understanding that her clothing, underwear, girdle, and pants were sliced away using a knife or possibly scissors. Shirley's remains were then covered with a blanket. Dick's body was dragged to the hallway, right next to the heater. The bodies of his youngest children, Randy and Susie, were piled next to him. The killer then covered them with a rug. The older boys, Gary and Richard, were left in the back bedroom. Now, the male victims were shot, but the two female victims, Mother Shirley and Daughter Susie, were given extra attention. Shirley was posed and her clothing was cut away. Susie was struck repeatedly with a claw hammer. So you have to wonder, was the attack focused on the two females? Or was this done to distract investigators? Overnight temperatures in late June dipped into the upper 50s but the house was closed up against the cooler weather and the heater was on. Meaning that even with daytime temperatures nearing 80 degrees, the heater was still running. And that is how Somerset remained until July 22nd, when the overwhelming stench of decomposition and death drifted toward the neighbor's place, halting their card party. And did I mention that the neighbor's house was dozens of yards away? In addition to the gruesome murders, Shirley's diamond ring was gone, along with Dick's expensive Omega watch. Cash, thought to be in the hundreds of dollars, was missing from Dick's wallet as well. Investigators could hardly get near the place, put off by the stench and the clouds of flies. They resorted to donning gas masks to explore the house 
and remove what remained of the Robison family. The windows of the house were opened wide to encourage the flies and the smell to leave. Between the bugs and the advanced state of decomposition, it was a horrifying mess. Sheriff Richard Zink, the head lawman in Emmett County, was out of state, vacationing at Yellowstone Park. He didn't learn of the murders until a park ranger, noticing his Michigan plates, asked him if he knew what had happened in his home state. Zink ended his family vacation, their first trip in years, and returned to Emmett County, arriving days after the scene was discovered. The sheriff who was covering for Zink was new to the job, and the worst mass murder in northern Michigan history occurred on his watch. Now, the sheriff's department did not secure the scene the way that we, people who watch CSI and Investigation Discovery, would hope that they would. When the call went out on the radio, law enforcement from every department in earshot reported to check things out. By the time technicians from the Michigan State Police Crime Lab arrived, a dozen people had been through Somerset. Remember, there was no phone at the cottage, so someone had to find a house with a phone and place the call to Lansing. Then, the lab had to be called in and make the three-and-a-half-hour drive to Goodhart. Emmett County Prosecutor Wayne Robert Smith entered the home briefly with first responders on July 22nd. He would later burn the suit he'd been wearing. He said there was no way to get the smell of death out of the fabric. They needed to perform autopsies on the remains, but they decided against taking the bodies to a nearby hospital. The small medical centers in Petoskey and Traverse City were not equipped to handle something like this. A decision was made to take the bodies to the Emmett County Fairgrounds. Equipment was borrowed and brought in, and the work was done there. Now they're asking who would do this to the Robison family and why. We have several suspects to consider, so let's talk about them. At first, people thought this could have been a mafia hit, that Dick Robison owed money to the Detroit mob, and they sent cleaners up to take care of the family in retribution. Personally, I don't like this theory, and that's for two reasons. While Robison may have been having financial problems, why drive so many miles to shoot the family when they could have murdered Dick in his office on Southfield Road? Two, and forgive me for saying this, but it feels out of character for a mafia hitman to take the time to bludgeon a little girl after shooting her in the head. Finally. Remember the death of Harvey Leach in 1974? He was in financial trouble with the mob, so they cut his throat and dumped his body in the trunk of his car. His children were left out of it. The next suspect to explore is caretaker and home builder Monty Bliss. Born Chauncey Bliss Jr., Monty and his father, Chauncey Sr., designed and built the lakefront homes in the 1950s. With a stone foundation and walls made of lacquered logs, the design was popular, and it's in demand to this day. Monty Bliss and his family knew the Robisons. In fact, Monty's son Norman was friendly with 19-year-old Richard and 16-year-old Gary Robison. A few days before the murders, 18-year-old Norman was killed in a motorcycle accident. He'd been out drinking, lost control of his bike, and slammed into a tree. It was his father that discovered the body. 
This was a tragic loss for the family. Dick Robison made a visit to the Bliss household to pay his respects to the family, to apologize for not being able to attend the funeral service because of their travel plans, and he gave Norman's mother, Dorothy, $20 in lieu of sending flowers. In today's money, it would be like handing $125 to the family. It was a generous gift given with kindness. In addition to creating beautiful homes, Monty was known for his eccentric behavior, and many in the small community thought it possible that, in a fit of rage and grief at the loss of his son, he directed his anger at the Robison family. Nancy Bendixson, the daughter of Monty Bliss, disagrees. Yes, her father was an unusual man, a man that had an untreated neurological condition, but she insists that he never ever hurt anyone. The accusations, the whispering and speculation, deeply hurt him and hurt their family. Nancy's mother, Dorothy, agreed, saying, he never could have done something like that. Others say that if Bliss was drinking, he had no problem pointing out that the Robisons got what was coming to them. These are the same people who like to bring up that Monty was a handyman and carried a claw hammer like the one used to bludgeon Susan and Shirley. Monty took a polygraph examination, and he passed. Sadly, whispers and rumors would follow Bliss until the end of his days, and he died in 1980 at age 69. Another name that I've seen swirling around this case is that of serial killer John Norman Collins. You should be familiar with Collins. The Canadian-born serial killer was a student at Eastern Michigan University in 1968. Who was also a student there? Richard Craig Robinson. In fact, it's likely that Collins and Robinson knew each other, at least casually, perhaps better. Is it possible that Collins, feeling slighted by something Robinson said or did during their time together as EMU students, decided to attack the family? I don't think it's likely. Collins liked his victims female and college age. He liked ligatures and visiting the bodies after the crime. The Robison family slang does not fit his profile. Eventually, law enforcement would rule him out. But at the time, it must have been easier to think that there was just one monster in Michigan, and his name was John Norman Collins. Now, murder was an uncommon thing in Emmett County. The last homicide was back in 1958, in Petoskey, when Paul Achenbach killed his mother and rolled up her body in a rug. The Achenbach case was bizarre. He was a World War II veteran, an insurance agent, a member of the Rotary and of the Elks Club, an active member of the Episcopalian Church. He was well-liked in the community, and his elderly mother, Clara, lived in an apartment attached to his insurance office. One day, the 59-year-old snapped and murdered his 78-year-old mother. He rolled her body up in a rug and stuffed her in a closet. Then he lined the closet with towels to mask the smell of her remains. It would be months before anyone noticed she was missing. It was Achenbach's wife, Gretchen, who demanded to see her mother-in-law. When Paul couldn't produce her, she called the police. Achenbach confessed to where his mother's body could be found. When they located the body, they found that Paul had written a note of apology when the murder occurred. 
I'm sorry this had to happen, but I was drunk. I think I've been out of my mind for some time. Achenbach was charged with first-degree murder, but he pleaded guilty to manslaughter. In a bizarre coincidence, Achenbach had taken over his insurance business from the father of Emmett County Prosecutor Wayne Richard Smith, and the former prosecutor was quoted in Achenbach's obituary when he died in March of 78. Smith referred to Achenbach as a soft-spoken gentleman. Before we get to the last suspect, the man who is the popular choice as the doer of this heinous crime, I'd like to talk about the evidence. So, I'm going to remind you that the bodies were in a house on the edge of Lake Michigan, a house with the heater turned on at the height of summer. The house was closed up, and by the time the bodies were discovered, the condition of the remains had deteriorated greatly. The house was also filled with flies. Again, my heart goes out to the first responders who had to sort through that mess. Now, the murder weapons, except for the claw hammer, were never found. The hammer itself, potentially a great source of fingerprints, was not helpful. The cloth used to pick up the hammer may have disturbed any prints. The floor of the house was spattered with blood, and police were able to preserve a bloody footprint. There were shell casings on the floor, and of course, they found bullets in the bodies. But in 1968, checking for DNA was unheard of, and the advanced state of decomposition made checking Shirley Robison's body for signs of sexual assault impossible. When law enforcement went to Robison's Southfield office to talk with his staff, Robison's assistant told them of a heated discussion between Dick Robison and his employee, Joseph Scalaro. Robison's secretary would tell law enforcement that Dick became aware of financial discrepancies after talking with his banker at National Bank of Detroit. He tried reaching Scalaro to discuss the missing money, but Scalaro was dodging him. Robison finally caught up with him at the office the morning of June 25th, and they had a heated exchange. After the phone call, Scalaro left the office for the day. After the family was murdered, a forensic audit was performed of the business's financial situation, and it appeared that Richard was running full-page ads in Empresario magazine that were not requested or paid for. This was a commonly used trick to make the magazine appear more profitable. The forensic accountant's work revealed that $60,000 was missing from the business accounts. The money had vanished between mid-April and mid-June of 1968. This was a period of time when Richard was traveling extensively on business, and he could not be responsible for the funds being taken. Today, you do your banking from an ATM or your computer or your phone, but in 1968, banks were open from about 9 a.m. until 4 p.m., Monday through Friday. You did your banking in person. If you were traveling, you would have to physically enter the bank where the banker would place a call back to your bank to verify the funds were available prior to cashing a check for you. So if it wasn't Robison accessing the funds, who was it? Law enforcement looked closely at Robison's right-hand man, Joseph Scalaro. Joseph Scalaro III was an Army veteran, a smart young man who'd studied at Harvard University. Scalaro was in his 30s with a wife, two sons, and a home in Birmingham, 
which is a prestigious address even today. He was a gun enthusiast and a skilled sharpshooter. He was known to own the same types of weapons used to eliminate the Robison family. Robison had hired Scalaro in 1965 to work on Empresario magazine. When questioned by police, Scalaro agreed that yes, he and Robison had quarreled on the phone that morning, but he did not drive to Goodhart and kill anyone. In fact, he'd gone into the city of Detroit to Cobo Hall for a plumbing convention. Then he'd stopped at the Pontchartrain Hotel in Detroit for a drink at the bar. On the way home, he'd stopped by the Robison's house to make sure that the heavy rain that had fallen that day hadn't caused water to seep into their basement. Unfortunately, water had entered the basement, and Scalaro was there cleaning up for at least an hour. But no one could vouch for his whereabouts except for his wife, who told police that yes, he'd returned home around 10 or perhaps 11 p.m., making it impossible for Scalaro to be the trigger man. Now, if the ear witnesses were correct, the shots and shouting they heard on June 25th happened around 9 p.m. There was no way he could have shot the family at 9 o'clock, then driven back to Detroit in two hours. Police interviewed people who had been at Cobo Hall attending the convention, but none of them recalled seeing Scalaro that day. When Emmett County Prosecutor Wayne Richard Smith interviewed Scalaro, he was struck by how often the man contradicted himself. Smith later said that Scalaro had the means, the motive, and the opportunity to commit this crime. In early 1968, Smith decided he would not seek re-election as Emmett County Prosecutor. He'd had the job since 1963 and was ready for a change. When the election occurred in November, David Noggle took the job. Meanwhile, law enforcement learned that Scalaro owned a rifle identical to the one used in the murders. He also owned a 25 caliber handgun. Scalaro pointed out that he and Robison both owned a 25 caliber gun. He'd bought one for himself and one for his boss. But when law enforcement searched the Robison home in Lathrop Village for guns, they didn't find any. Now, the ammunition used in the murders was a rare type of ammunition, a European-made brand called Sako, that's S-A-K-O. This brand is manufactured in Finland, and it's not easy to find in the United States. Law enforcement discovered that in February of 1968, Scalaro purchased two 25 caliber Beretta handguns and two boxes of Sako ammunition from a gun store in Flint. Joe's wife, Laura, told investigators that sometime in June of 68, Joe took one of the weapons with him to work, and she did not see it again. When police visited the Oakland County shooting range Scalaro frequented, they found shell casings fired by the same weapon used at the murder scene. Scalaro once owned two Armalite AR-7 22 caliber rifles. This is the weapon that was used in the murders. He told police that he gave one gun to his brother-in-law and gave the other gun to a friend who lived in Chicago. Investigators were only able to locate one of the guns. The other was never found, just like Scalaro's handgun and Robison's handgun, missing. Now, I've been told the Armalite AR-7 rifle is a takedown weapon, 
meaning it can be broken down for easy transport or concealment. And I imagine it can be broken down for easy disposal as well. Shells taken from the gun range that Scalaro frequented were fired by the same weapon, an Armalite AR-7 rifle, which was used in the Goodhart murders. Not the same type of weapon, but the actual same weapon. Remember we talked about the bloody footprint found at the scene? Well, the bloody footprint matched the shoe size worn by Joseph Scalaro. They also matched a set of shoe covers owned by Scalaro, except that Scalaro's covers were brand new, meaning they couldn't have been the covers that left a bloody footprint at the house. And if you aren't familiar with these shoe covers, Google totes rubber over shoes. I remember when I was young, my father would wear these over his dress shoes when it rained or snowed. And it rained that day in Detroit, the day of the Goodhart murder. The week after the 4th of July holiday, Shirley Robison's mother contacted Robison's office because she hadn't heard from her daughter and she was concerned. It was Joe Scalaro who reassured her that he'd recently talked with Dick Robison and all was well. So we've got circumstantial evidence piling up around Joseph Scalaro. Not enough to charge him, but enough to make law enforcement very interested. And you know that I am not a big fan of polygraph tests, but between 1968 and 1972, Scalaro failed three polygraphs relating to the murders. Now, these three tests had very different questions. One test was about the murders. One test was about the weapons used in the murders, and so on, and he failed all three tests. Going back to the night of the shooting, while the neighbors nearly a quarter mile down the road heard the shooting and the shouting around 9 p.m. on June 25th, a police report dated August of 1968 notes that one of the boys was wearing a watch that stopped at 6.45 p.m., If we use that 6.45 p.m. time as the midpoint of the murders, it is possible that Scalaro was the killer, that he had time to arrange the bodies and be on the road back to Detroit by 7 p.m. and make the 270-mile drive home along I-75 in four hours, arriving around 11 o'clock, just like his wife said. We spoke earlier about financial audits of the business, and it was clear that Scalaro had helped himself to Robinson's business funds in his absence, even giving himself a generous pay raise. Michigan State Police Detectives Lloyd Stearns and John Fliss spent months building a case against Scalaro. They presented it to Emmett County Prosecutor Noggle, who declined to pursue charges. Michigan State Police was surprised by the decision. Rumors circulated that the rustic and rural Emmett County wasn't prepared for a trial of this magnitude. Or, perhaps, Noggle himself wasn't up to the task. Maybe he didn't feel the case was strong enough to bring to a jury. Whatever the cause, it wouldn't be Emmett County that brought charges against Scalaro. In 1970, Somerset would be destroyed. First, the curiosity seekers couldn't leave the place alone. Then, there was the inability to get the smell out of the beautiful lacquered wood walls of the home. The property has been sold many times since 1970. There is a new house built on the same lot, but the location where Somerset once stood is now a stand of pine trees. 
1973, newly elected Oakland County Prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson was willing to charge Joseph Scalaro with conspiracy to commit murder. It wasn't the six counts of first-degree murder that the killer or killer deserved, but it was something. We've talked about L. Brooks Patterson before in various episodes, and you might remember he was not my favorite person. Unfortunately, someone in the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office knew Scalaro's mother and tipped her off that an arrest warrant was forthcoming. Mrs. Scalaro called her son to tell him what she had heard. At this point, Joseph Scalaro had been through five years of detectives and collections agencies, five years of leaving his Birmingham home for a daily drive past the impossible-to-avoid cemetery where the Robison family is buried. Despite buying out the successful and profitable business from the Robison family estate, Scalaro couldn't make a go of it. He'd lost the accounts and run Empresario into the ground. By the end of 72, he was deeply in debt. He could no longer afford employees or staff. His mother worked for him a few days a week, helping with clerical tasks. On the afternoon of March 8, 1973, 38-year-old Scalaro went to work for the last time. He closed himself in his office, wrote a suicide note, and shot himself in the head. The note was an apology for being a liar and a phony, for forging his mother's signature on checks to keep the collection agencies at bay. He added a postscript where he denied killing the Robison family, quote, I am a liar cheat. I am not a murderer. This phrasing has many an internet detective asking if Scalaro leading off with, I am a liar, means that he is a murderer after all. Scalaro left behind a wife and two young sons. Michigan State Police Detective Lloyd Stearns once told Scalaro, You may not have killed the Robisons, but you know who did. Stearns and his partner John Fliss had worked the case for several years. For Stearns, when Scalaro died, the investigation died as well. But that's not the end of the story. In 1975, something interesting happened. A car was left on the side of the road along M14. This car, a blue 1965 Chevy with Ohio plates, was tagged as abandoned, and a state trooper opened the glove compartment looking for information about the owner. What he found instead breathed new life into the investigation. In the glove compartment was a luggage tag. The inscription on the tag read Shirley L. Robison, and it had the Robison's address in Lathrop Village. So state troopers tracked the car from its initial purchase in Toledo, Ohio in 1966 through its many owners, but nothing they discovered led them any closer to an answer. Why was her luggage tag in this car? How did it get there? Who left the car on a desolate stretch of freeway between Ann Arbor and Oakland County? A satisfactory answer to this question would never be uncovered. Something to consider is that the contents of the Robison's Lathrop Village home were sold at an estate sale or something similar. It's possible that someone bought the suitcase and, needing to use it, removed the luggage tag and shoved it in the glove compartment where it was forgotten until years later when a state trooper uncovered it. In 2003, hoping that improved DNA technology could bring answers to the long, unsolved case, 
evidence was pulled out of storage and sent for testing. The evidence included the hammer and foreign hairs found on Shirley Robison's body, but the samples were too contaminated or too degraded to provide any answers. The Robison family murders, or Goodhart murders as they are also known, are still open. There is a detective assigned to the case, and he processes the tips that still trickle in all these years later. If it wasn't Joseph Scalaro, the actual killer or killers are unlikely to be caught after all this time. We may never know what fueled the rage that led to the additional assaults on Shirley and Susie Robison. Not surprisingly, most of the people associated with this case have passed on. Sheriff Zink died of cancer in 1990. Kitty Scalaro, who worked as a secretary for her son until his death, died in 1979. Detroit reporter Al Kosky covered the story from the summer of 68 until his death in 2010. His extensive files on the case were passed on to another researcher in the hope that someday this case can be closed. So if you find yourself in Petoskey or Harbor Springs and want to check out the area as it was during the summer of 68, I suggest that you visit Legs Inn. You'll find it in Cross Village. The historic waterfront restaurant is likely a place the Robison family dined that summer. But please don't pester the new owners of the property that once housed Somerset. Some things are best left undisturbed. If you feel like doing some research, visit the Petoskey Public Library. They have several binders of information on this case. The Harbor Springs Historical Museum has the Somerset sign that hung over the fireplace, among other items from the home. At the beginning of my research, I knew very little about this story, other than that it involved the death of an entire family. I have never been to Goodhart. And despite having family with cottages up north, I'm not as familiar with this part of the state. As I dug into the research, I started to view this case differently. Not just because it was a brutal and unthinkable crime, annihilating an entire family, but the killer went back and finished them off with a handgun and assaulted the two female victims further. He displayed unbelievable cruelty. The pain, horror, and shame this crime wrought on Goodhart and the Felton and Robison families, it lingers. We're five decades out, and the pain is still there. Shirley and Dick were 39 and 42 years old. Their brothers and sisters, their friends, work associates, neighbors, the children's teachers, their classmates, the people in the congregation of their church, every one of them was touched by this horror. The suspicion cast on Monty Bliss hasn't been forgotten by his own children and grandchildren, and we cannot forget Scalaro's own sons, who live in the shadows of the accusations around their father and his suicide. If you would like to learn more about this case, I recommend that you check out 9 and 10 News coverage and their special features on the Robison family. They're available on YouTube. I also recommend Marty Link's book, When Evil Came to Good Heart if you'd like to read it. If you happen to have information about the Robison family murder, please contact the Emmett County Sheriff's Office at 231-439-8900. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Be safe.